worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, September 10th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. The big underlying reason why so many items were tough to find at the start of the pandemic and why some may still be for a long time to come. The sea anemones who grow extra tentacles when they eat too much. The psychological makeup of mountain dwellers in the U.S. still matches that of Wild West pioneers, a study finds. And the offbeat candy canes that the internet can't get enough of. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So I've talked a few times about the various shortages we've faced since the pandemic began, from hand sanitizer and toilet paper to fireworks and home gym equipment. A lot of the shortages were due to unprecedented demand, of course, often combined with interruptions to the supply chain, especially in the case of items that rely on one or more elements being produced in Chinese factories, which shut down before our demand here in the U.S. really picked up. But it turns out there's another underlying reason why several items continue to be difficult to stock right now. Packaging. Cardboard boxes for pastas and cereals, paper bags for flour, the plastic canisters for disinfectant wipes, cans for beer. Like with the initial toilet paper shortage, part of the problem lies in the migration of half of the jobs in the U.S. from offices to homes and the closure of large public spaces. Quoting Slate, This isn't primarily because of the materials like aluminum or paper. Instead, it's about factories' limited capacity to turn those materials into the specific kinds of containers consumers require. As a report from McKinsey spells out, closures of public venues like restaurants and stadiums severely depressed demand for the bulk packaging of food, toilet paper, and other products. But consumers were simultaneously seeking out the same products for use at home and in larger quantities than usual. That meant there was a greater need for smaller packaging formats. Manufacturers had to either switch over production lines meant for bulk-size packaging or run pre-existing ones devoted to smaller packaging at much higher speeds. That's not easy to do in a short period of time, said Matthew Daum, director of Michigan State University's School of Packaging. All that material is finely tuned and takes up a certain amount of space and is built around a certain package format. For example, to convert a factory that typically turns out 5-gallon bags for instant rice into one that makes 12-ounce pouches, you'd either have to buy brand new equipment or retrofit older units at a high cost, end quote. And as for those beer cans, there was a 30% rise in demand for aluminum cans this spring, 25% more than what would usually constitute a significant disruption in the supply chain. And despite the incredible demand for beer, hard seltzers, and sparkling wines, not to mention soda and canned food, companies like Molson Coors actually saw their market share drop because they had to cease production to some of their line. And like with other items that have experienced a shortage, the demand began, albeit in a smaller way, before the pandemic. 
Americans' taste has shifted recently toward aluminum cans because they're more recyclable, so the industry was already working hard to keep up before all of this. And there's all the plastic containers for, predominantly at the moment, cleaning supplies. Canisters, pump bottles, spray bottles. Brian Sansoni, Senior Vice President of Communication for the American Cleaning Institute, told Slate that the lead time for fulfillment for the desktop caps used on things like shampoo bottles has extended all the way through the start of 2023. And those desktop caps are a good example of another challenge here. A lot of the parts of these different items aren't made in the same place. If the place that makes the body of the plastic shampoo bottle has them ready by December of this year, what does it matter if the tops won't be ready until 2022? And it's complicated because each factory is having to make tough decisions in line with an increasingly unpredictable market. Catherine Storr, senior supply chain director for the Illinois-based company Berlin Packaging, told Slate, quote, Depending on the equipment, it has such long lead times that by the time you get it commissioned, if you haven't projected right about where the market's going to go, then obviously you'll end up mothballing it. And quoting from Slate, adding infrastructure requires not only buying equipment, but also finding enough staff to operate it. What if a can maker doubles capacity, but demand for kegs suddenly goes up again? End quote. Solutions for now include aluminum can manufacturers working on building more facilities, but that takes at least six months to a year. And the cleaning sector is trying to shift to things like bags instead of plastic canisters and cutting out more cosmetic choices like dyeing the canisters a certain color for efficiency's sake. And that's also why, as I talked about a few weeks ago, a lot of the less popular, more specialty options and flavors of particular items have been tough to find for months. Companies are focusing on the most broadly appealing options so that they can just get products out the door as fast as possible. I think it's too early to know what long-term effects this shakeup to the supply chain of so many different products will have, but I do wonder if it will lead to any sort of environmentally responsible changes to packaging. Because, you know, maybe some companies will take the gamble that they don't need to wrap something in as much plastic for people to still buy it. Or will it have the reverse effect? in which the most sustainable packaging options, like compostable packaging, which is often more expensive and can take more time to produce, is put on the back burner or potentially phased out altogether. While the lockdown has been great for the environment in some ways, you know, the whole anthropause, nature is healing stuff, it's also been really bad for it in terms of how much more waste people are producing in an effort to stay sanitary. Not to mention the number of people buying cars to avoid public transportation and the huge uptick in air travel and all kinds of bad-for-the-environment activities that people will likely do in enormous amounts once it's eventually safe to do so again. I guess, like with all things, it just kind of balances out, even if it's in ways that are tough to see at first. Time for another round of weird facts about sea creatures, and this time, starlet sea anemones, who have a newly discovered trait that sounds like the beginning of a would-you-rather question. A new paper published this week in the journal Nature Communications describes how when starlet sea anemones eat a ton of food, they don't necessarily get lethargic or have a food baby like us humans. No, instead, they grow new tentacles. The researchers say this is a trait never before observed in other animals. Sea anemones, along with coral and jellyfish, belong to the phylum Cnidarian, which evolved separately from other phyla over half a billion years ago, and they're distinct from the rest of the animal kingdom mostly due to their adaptability. In response to environmental changes, they can change their body size, reproductive strategy, and venom. Quoting the New York Times, 
As larvae, starlet sea anemones grow four base tentacles. After they reach adulthood, they add more until they have as many as 24, although most max out at 16. Other sea anemone species can grow hundreds. Because anemones are stuck in one spot, they have the same challenges as a plant, said Dr. Asim Ikmi of the European Molecular Biology Lab Heidelberg and lead author of the new paper. Their tentacles bring the world to them, helping them capture food and sense the environment, end quote. What Dr. Ikmi and the rest of the team discovered was just how many tentacles the anemones grew in adulthood was closely related to how much food they ate. Those who were well-fed grew more tentacles in three or four days, while those who had less food paused their growth. After testing this on over a thousand anemones in the lab over a period of six months by feeding them brine shrimp, the hypothesis was confirmed, but there were also other findings. One is that the tentacles grown in adulthood definitely develop differently than the initial larvae ones, even though the resulting tentacles are structurally the same. But they also found that an abundance of food wasn't the only thing causing tentacle growth. Anemones who were restricted from reproducing also grew more tentacles. And while this is the first time this has been noticed in a sea anemone, the connection seems to be solid enough to suggest that it could be a broader phenomenon, at least in some way. For example, last year scientists discovered that when the Aptasia anemone doesn't have a full diet, they produce offspring without tentacles, or sometimes with very small ones. Also, when I was looking up how to pronounce Aptasia, I discovered that they're considered a pest by aquarium owners and notoriously difficult to get rid of. Poor Aptasia. But anyways, starlet sea anemones are freaking cool, and I guess I'm glad that I don't grow extra arms when I overeat, but like, you know, if we could harness that power of regrowth on demand, I mean, it could be pretty freaking handy. A new study from the University of Cambridge indicates that certain psychological traits possibly tied to America's frontier days remain in mountain dwellers, particularly on the West Coast. Researchers analyzed the personality test results of over 3 million Americans compared with the topography of their zip codes and found, quoting from Cambridge, Living at both a higher altitude and an elevation relative to the surrounding region, indicating hilliness, is associated with a distinct blend of personality traits that fits with frontier settlement theory. The harsh and remote environment of mountainous frontier regions historically attracted nonconformist settlers, strongly motivated by a sense of freedom, said researcher Friedrich Goetz from Cambridge's Department of Psychology. Such rugged terrain likely favored those who closely guarded their resources and distrusted strangers, as well as those who engaged in risky explorations to secure food and territory. These traits may have distilled over time into an individualism characterized by toughness and self-reliance that lies at the heart of the American frontier ethos, said Goetz, lead author of the study. End quote. The findings from the self-assessed personality tests included, quote, low levels of agreeableness, suggesting mountainous residents are less trusting and forgiving, traits that benefit territorial, self-focused survival strategies. Low levels of extroversion reflect the introverted self-reliance required to thrive in secluded areas, and a low level of conscientiousness lends itself to rebelliousness and indifference to rules, say researchers. Neuroticism is also lower, suggesting an emotional stability and assertiveness suited to frontier living. However, openness to experience is much higher, and the most pronounced personality trait in mountain dwellers. Openness is a strong predictor of residential mobility, said Goetz. 
a willingness to move your life in pursuit of goals such as economic affluence and personal freedom drove many original North American frontier settlers, end quote. And they found that all of these traits were more pronounced in the western half of the United States. That last trait of openness to experience was ten times higher in what would have once been the Wild West as compared to eastern parts of the country. The researchers also tried to account for whether these traits are lingering from those pioneer days or simply common to people who choose to live in the mountains, and determined that in general, it does seem to be the lingering culture, the stories and education about their ancestors and history that people are exposed to while growing up in those areas that may lead to some of those key personality traits sticking with people even if they move away. I'm quoting once more, they describe the effect of the mountain areas on personality as small but robust, but argue that complex psychological phenomena are influenced by many hundreds of factors, so small effects are to be expected. Small effects can make a big difference at scale, said Goetz. An increase of one standard deviation in mountainousness is associated with a change of around 1% in personality. Over hundreds of thousands of people, such an increase would translate into highly consequential political, economic, social, and health outcomes, end quote. And this adds up with things that I've heard before about how people in more rural areas are more accustomed to doing things for themselves, because they often have to by virtue of living in more remote areas, often far from other people, businesses, or institutions that could help them out. And therefore, they sometimes may bristle at the idea of government stepping in to control things. Whereas people who live in urban areas are more used to the government or at least other people handling things for them. An article I read recently that I cannot find for the life of me, I apologize, gave one small example. Living in a tight space like an apartment, you may not have the room to own certain tools or equipment to fix things that break in your home. So when that happens, you call someone to fix it for you instead of doing it yourself. Or, you know, the government picks up your trash every week, whereas in more rural areas, you may have to take it to the dump yourself. An urbanite may rent from a landlord or company instead of owning their own land or property that might have even been in their family for generations out in a rural area. And instead of driving your own car to work or simply working on your own land, you might take public transportation. People in urban areas are just more accustomed to institutions being a part of their everyday life than people in more rural areas are. The article that I wish I could recommend for you explained it all a lot better, but it's these small everyday things that have ripple effects on how people living in different environments might view certain policies or programs differently. I mean, I will never forget driving through the Sonoran Desert in Arizona with a friend who grew up in the suburbs of New York and had never before been that far west. We'd been there a few days, and looking around, she remarked, "'There is nothing here that applies to my life.'" And what she meant was the needs of her community in a more densely populated area with a vastly different climate were so far removed from the needs of people in Arizona that it was strange to think we were even still in the same country, controlled by the same federal government, and that it made sense that people in those two places could largely have very different political priorities and very different personalities. So I find this study interesting in its suggestion that these experiences, both currently and as passed down in culture, can also affect personality traits. I think we could possibly dive a bit into American exceptionalism and manifest destiny, but probably best to leave it there for today. It's September now, and you know what that means. Time to start getting ready for Christmas. 
I'd say I'm kidding, but a friend of mine who runs a merchandise distributor told people in August to start their holiday shopping because the shipping delays at every step of the chain this year are going to be so drastic. So maybe not such a bad idea to at least start bookmarking anything you see that you may want to buy as a gift for someone or to start making any of your other holiday plans since, you know, all plans take a bit more consideration these days. And so I present to you now a maybe gift recommendation if you like buying weird gag gifts or just have a friend with a very specific palette. There is a Seattle-based company called Archie McPhee, who's known for selling really offbeat products. They're the ones who originated the librarian action figure. Although that's really a more tame example of their fare, they also sell racing possums, wind-up pigeons, emergency goat sound effect machines, just all the weird, gross-out, cheap toys that you'd find in your local prank shop or five-and-dime, but sometimes a little more intentionally designed. And their newest arrivals are an expansion to their popular candy cane line. They release new flavors every year, and in 2018 went a bit viral thanks to an Instagram influencer, so the candy canes are a bit more well-known now and can sometimes sell out, so if you are actually into them, you should try to get on this quick. And without further ado, the new flavors for 2020 are ketchup, pho, and shiitake mushroom. That's three separate flavors, by the way. Putting them all together would just be disgusting as a candy cane. I mean, come on. So yeah, super weird. Uh, Past flavors, which are still available as well, include kale, pizza, bacon, and mac and cheese, as well as ham, a.k.a. hamdy canes, and clam, a.k.a. calamdy canes. Apparently, the bacon, pickle, and mac and cheese have been bestsellers because, as Archie McPhee's director of Awesome, David Wall, told Boing Boing in 2018, quote, We actually thought clamdy canes would be more popular. Turns out, mixing two things people actually like together gets people more excited than actually trying to gross them out. End quote. Well, just good to know that 2020 has not stopped this weird little company from continuing their gross holiday traditions. That is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go eat a huge lunch and uh, see if I notice any arms start sprouting. You know, for science. I hope you have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>